we thought that we were being smart by asking who else has done business with you and how did it go? And everybody said it worked fantastically. We didn't ask who went through a cycle of misunderstandings or violations of contract and how was it resolved? All we could see was the shining end of the journey. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guests, Viola Llewellyn. Viola, are you ready to rock? I'm going to rock as much as I can. Hello, Andrew. How are you? I am fantastic. And audience, we've had the benefit of having a few minutes to just chit chat. So I think we're pretty warmed up. What do you say? Yeah, as hot as we're going to get. Amen. All right. So let me tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Viola is the co-founder and president of Ovamba Solutions. She oversees innovation, strategic implementation, investor communications, and business development. Digital Undivided included her as one of only 34 black women in the United States to have raised more than 1 million buckaroonies for a technology company. She's a TED speaker and an appointed global technology pioneer with the World Economic Forum. Recently, she was listed in Lattice 80, Top 100 Women in FinTech 2019. Her family is from Cameroon, and she was born, raised, and educated in the UK and lives between the African continent and the good old US of A. Viola, fill in a few tidbits about your life. Well, let's see here. I'm married to my wonderful husband, Vincent, who's from New York. I am known to be a, an addict for cartoons. And if you ask me who my inspiration in life is, it's Batman. Oh, yeah. God, I can just remember watching Batman when I was young, every day coming home from school. <laughs> I still want to do that. Yes. Back when the heroes were just all good. And now the heroes are people like me, I hope. Amen. Exactly. All right. Well, let's get into it. Now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Sure. You mentioned at the beginning of the introduction that I'm the co-founder and president of Avamba Solutions, Inc. So just to set the scene and tell you how the story rolled out, let me explain what Avamba does. It was back in 2013 when my business partner, Marvin Cole, and I decided that we wanted to create a business that would help African business, African SMEs to get access to capital so that they could grow. Everybody knows around the world that small businesses need capital to sustain. And in the case of the African continent, we have microfinance institutions and we have banks. But this whole new era of peer-to-peer -peer lending, marketplace lending was just beginning when we hit on the bright idea that we wanted to be one of the first into the market to do this. Now, when you start something new, you're not really thinking about failure. And we hadn't seen any models that we could emulate that would tell us, here are the pitfalls that you can improve upon. All we knew was that we were going to create technology, be innovative, find business partners, raise capital, and help these businesses to grow. And we would be the Batmans of Africa. 
Great idea, right? So Fantastic. So in 2013, we did a successful friends and family raise and spoke to everybody that we knew. All of them knew that, oh, this is a great idea. 1.1 billion human beings on the African continent. You guys are rushing in, are doing something that's not charitable. It's going to be fantastic. What could possibly go wrong? Well, actually, not a lot went wrong at all. 2014 was coming around and there was a new association that came up to corral all of these peer-to-peer platforms, which we thought that's what we were at the time. Today, that isn't what we do at all. Today, we're a, a marketplace maker that funds those businesses that are in the trade sector and we create and innovate technology that do all of that. So the failure that I'm going to share with you is what led to this hugely successful innovation at the very end of it. April 2014, my business partner, who is way more cautious and sensible than I am, says that we're going to the big association conference. I consider myself very lucky in that early in my youth, I did not get to go to university because I made the big mistake of doing the worst thing that any young woman can do, getting pregnant while not being married. So my life was derailed. But with that derailment came my own intellectual path of understanding the world from a very different perspective compared to my business partner who has an MBA. And because I went into sales and marketing, I love to jump feet first into anything and figure it out later. I do not believe that you need to go from A, B, C, D, and systematically all the way to Z if you feel that you can see the ending just fine. And I started creating all of these templates and presentations and sending them out to every Tom, Dick, and Harry ahead of this conference. I thought, this is great. Look at all of these responses I'm getting. Everybody wants to know what we're doing. Everybody's interested. The thing about the beginning of either a bubble or a new industry or new asset class is everybody jumps in. There is sharks, piranhas, dolphins, and mermaids in the water. They're all there. Everybody's trying to find anything to jump onto. And that includes the startup community, which is what we were. This one particular company was the most aggressive. Long story short, we signed with our very very first institutional investor. And it was the most beautiful courtship. Trips to London, meetings, all of these other businesses that were also trying to figure it out at the same time. And the day came around when we started to negotiate the transaction. Here's where the first bit went wrong. We thought that we were being smart by asking, who else has done business with you and how did it go? And everybody said, it went fantastically. We didn't ask who went through a cycle of misunderstandings or violations of contract and how was it resolved? All we could see was the shining end of the journey. We signed the contract, we got an, we got an equity investment, and we also were told that we were going to get a large amount of capital to fund all of the businesses on the platform. We were still pivoting and in the middle of our beta And when it was time to get the 12 million or so to fund all of the businesses that we had invested marketing, time, promising them, underwriting these transactions, we now had a pipeline of close to, I would say, 60, 70 million that we were going to fund. 
and the returns on this were going to skyrocket us through that beautiful hockey stick of growth. And then the sound of crickets. <laughs> hey, where's that money? Um, we're trying to work some things out. Hey, where's that money? And then we started to see individuals leaving the investment company. And we started to see a slowdown in documentation. Then we started to see a change in the interest rates that were previously discussed. Then we started to see new clauses that were going to put ceilings. Long story short, Andrew, all that demand that we had originated and literally no money to fund it. We're in the middle of Africa. We've got billboards up in the streets. We've done all this press and marketing. We've hailed ourselves as the new heroes of the fourth industrial revolution. And now we cannot, they can't give any of that money out. Talk about scramble, spinning, creating new reasons, new excuses, having to redo the, um, the risk parameters under which we were going to say yes to which company, companies, how to figure out those that were coming back for second and third uh, funding of their transactions and all the rest of it. This was an absolute disaster and we missed our growth window and instead had to retract and pull back and almost start the company all over again, terminate partnerships and relationships, consolidate on those customers that we knew were not going to default. And the great thing out of that is it taught us how to grow organically with very little support, but it slowed us down considerably and really put a dent in the relationship with this group. My stomach every night was in nuts. My sense of pride in what we were doing was reduced to a thumbnail. My husband who thought, this is it, we're gonna be the unicorns of Africa, who I had taken so much of his pension capital to build this company, was now having to work extra in order to ensure that we, even though I wasn't bringing in any income, we weren't gonna go down the toilet. I'm grateful that my business partner and I did not fall out or get into loggerheads with each other over it, but I had to find new ways socially to deal with the fact that people were relying on us. Hundreds of businesses with wives, children, who had complained in ways that you would not believe that microfinance doesn't work for us. People who were writing articles about us being hailed as the brand new thing. And all of that had to come to a crashing end. And we had to shepherd ourselves across a chasm of expectation, perceived failure, and managing the narrative that says African businesses are failures, black people cannot manage businesses, failure is the expectation, and investors thinking, hey, wait a minute, we invested in the friends and family round, this was meant to be the great big exit, and we had to go back to everybody and explain what was going on. On top of that, because our asset class was brand new, the government of the country didn't understand what we were doing. We had to battle them and one of the big four accounting firms to try to make sure that they understood as a startup, we're trying to consolidate here. Give us a chance to stabilize. Scary. Very. Absolutely frightening. And embarrassing. Sure. And I... shameful. And yeah. as a woman, they look at you and say, you've got no business being in business here. And I had to fight all of those battles and rescue my pride at the same time. But that was 2015 into 2016. 
This is 2019 now, and you read the bio. So we went through that valley, and here we are today. Yay! Oh, boy. That's, it was horrible. Yeah. First of all, congratulations for not walking away. Most people would because of the pain, the shame, the guilt. People always want to show a brave face and they want to show success. And when we look at people, we see their success. But when everything's falling apart around us, it is very terrifying. It's, it is. It's humbling. It's humiliating. It's shameful, as you say. And I think I saw all my dreams just spinning out of control and floating away from me. It was frightening. Yeah. Someone told me many years ago is don't compare your insides to other people's outsides. And I really like that because it helped me realize that everybody is drowning in their own cesspool of thoughts and different things and everything that's going on. Like you just, everybody, life is not easy for anyone, but, but you know, so that, that, that's certainly, and I know in my coffee business that I mentioned before we turned on the recorder, we went through a lot of that. And um, I was, you know, I'm a financial professional and I was very ashamed of the fact that we went through many years where we really couldn't make it work. And it took us a long time. And of course, like you, basically we were knocked, you know, we were, we were hit by the Asian crisis in our case, but let's just say an external factor hit us pretty hard and we yeah. had to try to recover from it. So let me ask you the next question, which is what lessons did you learn? I learned that the strength of a future engagement relationship or even investment is based on how well you can recover when things go wrong is the first thing. I also learned that you should never put all your eggs in one basket when it comes to investment. You have to diversify. And on the other side of that fence, that means that for us startup founders, the first capital you raise should be the beginning of the next capital that you raise. I also discovered the horrible truth that it's very difficult to raise money when you need it and that the easiest money to raise is the one that you don't need. That to me is a bizarre paradox. People throw money at people who have money. This is insane. And I've had to understand that what that means to me as an action item is that I must never stop raising capital. Better to have the offer and you say no than to be looking around and you just can't find anything because the desperation of it makes you a higher risk. I also learned when you do equity and if there is debt that is attached to that, that the two should be clawed together, that if the debt on the contractual basis fails, the equity comes back to you. Made that big mistake, should have done that, didn't. I also learned that sometimes the next backup plan should be the incremental release of either the pipeline, the opportunity, drawdown capital. You cannot throw the entire thing up and say, this is it, this is the whole lot, and this is the horse we're going to market on. There has to be a process so that if there is, if you have to cut a piece off, the rest of it is still in place and can come through and, and fund your market or whatever the case may be. These were painful lessons. They are really, really hard. When you're a startup, you're so driven by passion and the dream. And as I've often said in every talk I've ever given, no business plan survives contact with the enemy. And the enemy is reality and the marketplace. Everything you thought you planned 
None of it is true. None of it. Very little. And investors asking startups for their business plan are hilarious. How the heck are they supposed to know, especially when you're first to market? There are other parameters you should be considering, and it ain't your business plan. Fantastic lessons. And I think for the listeners out there who are starting their business, starting their startup, it reminds me, I mean, some of the takeaways that I get from it is that it reminds me of the book by Michael Gerber, The, the E-Myth. And in it, he talks about the entrepreneurial seizure. And when mm-hmm. someone gets into that, it's just that passion, the energy, the excitement, nothing's ever going to go wrong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have to be very careful about that because sometimes that can blind us or we don't even look. I am myself so lucky. My business partner does have that unique gift. He sees all the ways that things can go wrong, and I see everything that will be possible. And between us, if he shook us up in the barrel, we would have the most powerful, amazing business owner. But we do balance each other in that respect. Yeah, I think my, I mean, you've summarized very well, and I think the startups, people that are starting up that are listening will gain a lot from it. But I would like to highlight one aspect, and it's the aspect of trust. Because some unique things about your story, I thought for sure, you were going to have to, your founding partner and you are going to break up over this because it's just so difficult and painful. So that's one that I learned from your lesson is the idea that with trust, you can possibly get through. The second thing, yeah, except the second thing is that, of course, what happens whenever you're raising money is two things. First, never expect that the people you're raising money from have the same objectives as you. Their objectives are very opposed, yeah. Yeah, they're very different. And don't ever expect that they're going to feel the way you do. And once you understand their thinking about things, it will help you. But the other thing is the amount of politics and all kinds of stuff that's going on at the company or the people that you're raising money from is something you just really don't know anything about. And Sometimes money can be withdrawn from situations, not because they don't want to do it. It's just that there's some other reason that's happening within the company. And I think my last takeaway goes back to the first thing I wrote down listening to you, which is about recommendations. Whenever you go to someone and ask for recommendations, are they going to tell you, hey, talk to this unsatisfied customer? No. (laughs) They're going to say, talk to, you know, talk to the people who love us. And that's where I recently had a, a meeting with the company that I, I was going to have to um, discuss with them about whether my services would be suitable for them. And as I recalled, I thought, wait a minute, I have a good friend from a long time ago that works there. And I said, look, let's get together and have coffee. We ended up talking for an hour and a half, catching up, but also I learned everything I possibly could, not from what that company said, hey, you know, talk to this references or that, but from someone that was on the inside. It wasn't a case of me trying to get confidential information. It was just the power of network and the power of people that you know and asking. And so I think that the last lesson really is whenever you're doing business with anybody, don't be ashamed, don't be afraid to go way beyond what is just given to you as far as recommendation and you you never know what you're going to find you may you know in that case in my particular case it wasn't so much a credibility thing what it was was i just really needed to understand their hot points and once i understood that when i went in the meeting i could really 
you know, really get straight to them much better. So I think that the, the whole thing about recommendation and checking up and following up and trying to understand someone before you do business with them uh, is a big takeaway. Is there anything you'd add? Yes. One of the things that comes back to me ever so clearly, almost in nightmarish detail, was how afraid I was of the power we had to completely screw up the market. Because we were the first of our kind in that region, if it had all gone wrong and we had lacked the ability to rescue the downfall, it would have come out that, politically speaking, these structures don't work in Africa. From a regulatory point, this should never happen again. Customers would say, oh, these newfangled alternative finance structures don't work. We would have shut the door on billions and billions and billions of dollars of investment from the institutional space that has often wanted to invest in Africa, but didn't know who they could trust and did not know whether or not there'd ever be a cessation to the negative narrative around investing in Africa, which has never been very good. That weighing on my shoulders was frightening. It was tear inducing. It led to numerous conversations with my business partner late into night as to everybody's going to absolutely hate us if this is the first and last time this opportunity ever comes up again. I'm so glad that we were able to, to get through it. Like, that is a great example of the pressure is on. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, <let's>, <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So Based on what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn in your life, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? And again, think about a young black woman as yourself in the same situation, excited about this idea, seeing the opportunity, going out to that market, trying to get the market excited, you're excited, try to raise the funding. That lady is listening right now. What's the one piece of advice you would give her? There is a level of authenticity that you need to search for when things go wrong. People can tolerate and forgive and support if they see that you've got an understanding of what's going on and that even if you don't have a game plan, that you sincerely wish to fix it and make sure that other people's interest is protected. And the way to do that is to have trust with customers and all stakeholders and transparency. And that's what saved us at the end of the day. Fantastic. I'm going to sum that up in my own mind. Like, yes. it's, it's okay. It's okay yeah. that things fall apart. It's okay that you're not able to deliver on what you said. Don't let that take you out of the game. Absolutely Just get not. back in there. So I, I like it a lot. All right, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Raise capital from good partners and actually be out front leading that process versus the terms being dictated to us. Fantastic. Raise capital, innovate new technology, control the narrative. Perfect. Ladies and gentlemen who are listening, you can go to the show notes to get all the connections if you're interested in investing. <laughs> all right. Well, that's it, listeners. There you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit my worst investment ever. As we wrap up, Viola, thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win 
as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? The worst thing that will ever happen to you in life is that you'll die and we're all going to die. But before that happens, you better learn to embrace failure because you are only as good as the last thing you recovered from and you get to champion and cheer yourself on from success to success, from loss to recovery. And I love this journey. And I think what you're doing, Andrew, is absolutely groovy. This is one of the best podcasts I've ever been on. So thank you. Amen. Well, we appreciate the fact that you share, you know, so deeply. And I love, and let's, let's end it with those three words or four words, learn to embrace failure. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.